Good morning. I invite those who will be heading to the toddler nursery in our children's church and those workers with them to be dismissed at this time. Those of you who remain, if you would please turn in your copy of God's word to Psalm chapter 25. Psalm chapter 25 as we continue our series together through songs for our Savior. Psalm chapter 25. Beginning in verse 1, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let uh, let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. And he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of, uh, of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Look, at my, look upon my enemies, for they are many. and They hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me and do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it is to us. Father, thank you that it portrays marvelous things like the forgiveness that we receive from you according to your mercy and for your glory. Father, this morning, let us live abundant lives in that forgiveness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. In verses 1 through 5, we have this introduction to this salvation psalm. And you notice it begins with, in verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That's how it starts. The lifting up of our souls to the Lord. Now, interestingly, the, the word for lift in our English Bibles comes from the same root word in Hebrew that means forgiven. The idea here is, is my forgiven soul is presented before you, O Lord. In fact, the only way that my soul can be 
present it to the Lord is if that soul has been forgiven for God cannot look upon evil. God cannot allow sin to come into his presence. And so it's important to note that carried here in this idea, this text right out of the gate is about salvation. It's about deliverance. Look at what happens when you get to verse two. Oh, my God. In you, I trust the concept of believing. So here in the first verse and a half, we have forgiveness that allows for an elevation of the spiritual self self into the presence of God. And we have faith. We have trusting. We have believing and that God is the only true source and object of that faith. Friends, this is the two headed reality of the gospel repentance, which is The precursor to forgiveness and faith, trusting in the Lord. So David is about to expound for us the idea of salvation found in the Lord. That's what he's going to do with this psalm. And I don't know about you, but I feel that's something we should attend to closely. So notice what he requests in this picture Of the elevated soul, the forgiven soul, the trusting soul. He makes a request. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. In other words, protect me from myself and protect me from my enemies. The shame that we often live in is the shame that we bring on ourselves. The sin that we live in, the sin that we dwell in. The ignoring of the way of Christ, the not being conformed to his image, the portrayal of an image of God that is not a true reflection of the glory of that God who has made us. There's where we find our shame. And he's asking the Lord, Lord, in my state of being forgiven, in my state of trusting you, do not let me be ashamed. Let my life be the sort of life that is not filled with shame filled things, but things that instead righteously reflect your glory. What a request. This should be the cry of our hearts daily. But then he follows it with. Don't let my enemies exult over me. Don't. Not only protect me from myself and the shame I might bring myself by walking away from your righteous way. But do not allow my enemies to glory over me in those moments of shame, because, friends, there's no greater time that the enemies of the gospel glory in the downfall of the gospel than when it appears in the life of a true believer. There's been far too many times in my own life since I came to know the Lord that the cry from someone outside of the faith, seeing the shameful way that I was living my life, the way that did not reflect the glory of Christ, that they were able to say in that moment with a great deal of truth, where is your Jesus? I thought he would change your life. I thought he would improve your life. I thought he would make your life different than what it is. But your life is still that same old tragic life that it's always been. David is crying out deeply from the depths of his soul. Lord, you've forgiven me. Lord, I trust in you. Do not let my 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 sin bring shame on me. And do not let my enemies exult over me when that shame is present. Protect me 
from myself. Protect me from my enemies. Indeed, he says in verse three, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. This word for wait is the word for hope also in the Hebrew Old Testament. Those who hope in you will not be put to shame. Is my hope in my desire? Is my hope in my longing? Is my hope in what I want my life to be like and about? Is my hope in those things that bring me pleasure? Is my hope in my disregard for God's way and instead of the pursuit of my own way? I'll be put to shame. But if my hope is in the Lord, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there will be no shame in the pursuit of the things of Christ. I may have to give up the ways of this world. I may have to appear strange to the people of this world. I may have to seem, as the New Testament says, an alien and a sojourner and someone who's walking through a foreign land in this place because of my walking with Christ. But there's no shame in that. There's no shame in that. The shame comes from the sinning. Hoping in Christ, walking with him, loving him, being conformed to his image. There's no shame there. Those who hope in you, those who wait on you, they will not be ashamed. And then notice. For those who deal treacherously without cause, they will be ashamed. The treacherous. Those who pursue after wickedness, those who do not desire to be conformed to the image of Christ through the salvation that comes from God and from God alone, they have no real hope. They are always pursuing, never achieving. There is always longing, but never a fulfillment. There's always a desire for just a little bit more. They're gouging themselves gluttonously at the buffet of wickedness and they have no delight in it. There's no hope in that. And so he asks in verse four and in verse five, teach me. That is the call of the humbled heart, the one that has been forgiven, the one that is trusting in the Lord, the one that is finding their hope in the Lord, the one that is longing for the Lord to preserve them from themselves and from the enemy and for shame not to arise from sinning. The one whose life is oriented this way in a full recognition of the glory of God and the salvation that he brings, the humble heart cries out to God, teach me. Look at what it says. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Newsflash. You cannot know the way of the Lord on your own. You can't. No amount of intelligence and academic pursuit will cause you to know the ways of the Lord. Just won't. That's coming from someone who is at least kind of smart and has done a lot of academic pursuit. I'm not belittling that. I think there's some value to be found in that. But friends, I had a professor when I was in college. Could outdo the Bible from anybody in this room. 
could cite for you the Old and the New Testament from memory, not just in the original languages, but also in the critical text analysis of the original language. Well, reading B says and reading C says, and this is the history of why they don't agree or disagree as to why that should be actually in the text says. And he could do that across multiple languages, not just the originals. And then you ask him, well, what do you think about Jesus? Probably wasn't a real person. What do you think about salvation? Salvation from what? There's no God. Friends, you cannot know the ways of the Lord in your own strength. What does David say? Make me know your ways. God, do something from the outside in. Something that I cannot and will not do on my own. Do something to me that is supernatural and a gracious gift from you to cause me to be able to participate in something that first off I could never participate in on my own if I wanted to. And I don't want to apart from you instilling that desire in me. Make me know your way. Friends, that is the peak expression of humility. I cannot know your ways, Lord. I'm acknowledging my low estate and my weakness. You have to do something unique in me or I will fail. That's humility. Whether you agree with his theology or not, one of the most prolific thinkers in the history of the Christian church, Thomas Aquinas, used to pray a very particular prayer before he would begin to study the Bible, to write the things that he wrote and to teach the things that he taught. And one of the lines in that prayer was, God, illuminate through your light the darkened parts of my mind that are filled with. With ignorance. Because he knew. If I just come to the Lord on my own. In my own strength. I will walk away with nothing. And David follows this up with. Teach me your paths. How should I walk? How should I live? How should I orient my life? What should my existence look like? What is the path of wisdom? How can I be compassionate? How can I be gracious? How can I be full of joy even in the midst of sorrow-filled circumstances? I don't know. Lord, teach me your paths. And lead me in your truth. And teach me. Why? For you are the God of my salvation. Hear me this morning, friend. True salvation in the Lord is not an entrance into the kingdom. You don't acknowledge your sin, repent of your sin, trust the name of Christ, walk through the gateway of salvation, and then set Jesus off to the side and just go running off to the races all on your own after that. Once you've walked through the gateway of a new birth, that's just the beginning Of God's interaction with you and transforming you into the image of his son. 
And we have to call out to God to make us know his ways, to teach us his paths, to lead us and to teach us and to guide us. Why? Because he is the God of our salvation. He's not just saving us from something. He's saving us to something. So, David, acknowledging the greatness of this salvation and the need that he has for it and the desire for God to teach him and to transform him, he starts at the very best spot. He calls out for God to forgive me of my sins. Notice what happens in verse 6. Remember, O Lord... Your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Your compassion and your mercy filled love. That's if you have a translation that renders that loving kindness. Mercy filled love. It's the language that's used around the atonement. God's loving kindness, his mercy filled love. The removal of our guilt and our sin by the gracious, compassionate kindness of God. Remember this, O Lord, call to mind this truth. Why? Because they are from of old. This phrase, they are from of old, could best be translated, they are everlasting. Your compassion and your loving kindness, they are everlasting. So remember them, call them to mind, keep them. What, what an, a unique thing David is saying here. You, everlasting God who knows all, who forgets nothing, constantly and regularly keep at the front of your glorious wisdom and mind and insight the everlasting truth of your own compassion and mercy. And then notice the contrast. David wants God to call to mind his own compassion and loving kindness constantly. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Wow. God, call to mind how compassionate and full of loving mercy you are. And do not call to mind how treacherous and wicked and evil I have been. If it wouldn't disrupt the sermon, this would be a moment where I, if I were sitting where you were, would have probably shouted out like glory or hallelujah. Because there is a lot the Lord could remember from my youth. There's a lot of transgressions that the Lord could call to mind. There's a great deal of wrath bearing that I could receive. There is a great deal of relational distance that should be there because the Lord cannot look upon sin. My sins have created a separation between me and my God where he will not see me and he will not hear me. Thus says the prophet Isaiah. But here David from a heart broken calls out, God, remember your loving kindness and do not remember my sin. And then he makes a very special request. According to your loving kindness, that loving kindness that I want you to call to the front of your eternal mind forever. 
in that loving kindness and in that loving kindness only, Lord, then remember me. Friends, there's two versions of you that God could look at. He could look at the version of you that is in Adam. Or he could look at the version of you that is in Christ. And there will be two radically different responses depending on what version of you God looks at. And David here is essentially crying out, do not see me when I was in Adam. Look at me now that I am in Christ. For your goodness sake. And then David, in this cry for forgiveness, this cry for God to remember him a certain way, begins to extol and and exalt the Lord's character. Listen to this. Listen to what he has to say about the Lord's character. Good and upright is the Lord. He is. Therefore, because he's good and upright, he instructs sinners in the way. And he teaches the humble in justice. He leads them in justice. This is beautiful. The paths, the pathways of the Lord are loving kindness, that same word from above, and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimony. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my Iniquity, listen to this, listen to this, for it is great. Listen to this character of God. He's upright. He's good. He instructs sinners. He leads the humble. He teaches them justice. He shows them his way. This path is full of merciful, loving kindness and goodness and truth. And all those who are involved in his covenant and his testimonies. God, you are a great and a good and a gracious God. And then he cries out from the depth of his heart. Listen to this. For your name's sake, not mine. How often do we cry out for forgiveness because we're worried about ourselves? God, forgive me. And help me kind of act a little right because I don't want to embarrass myself out there in the great big world. I have egg on my face right now. I have a lot of crow to eat. It's uncomfortable for me. Me, 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 me. No, listen to what David cries out here. He says, Lord, for your Name's sake, pardon my iniquity. Why? Because I'm supposed to bear your image. I'm one of your covenant people. When the world looks at me, they should see a reflection of what your son is like. The world should get a taste and a glimpse as to why you are the great God of the universe and your son is a great savior and your spirit provides great living and life. People should get at least some reflection of this when they see me. And when they see me in my sin, they do not see you for who you are. For your own namesake, pardon my sin. And I love how David is honest. For it is great. Friend, until you acknowledge the greatness of your sin, you will never acknowledge the greatness of Jesus as your Savior.
And then David moves on. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Listen to this. This is this is very key. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. Friends, the one instructed by the Lord himself in grace and in gospel and in forgiveness and in compassion and in loving kindness. This is the one who fears the Lord. Why? Why? Because apart from the instruction of the Lord, I would never fear him. I would be Pharaoh meeting Moses for the first time. The Lord has said for you to let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He found out right quick, by the way, that's how the story goes. Oh, you don't know me? Oh, you're going to find out. But that was, Pharaoh had not been instructed by the Lord. And so his response was what? I don't know who this is. I don't know the Lord. I don't care what he has to say. Friend, the one who fears the Lord. At the end, Pharaoh feared the Lord at least long enough to let him go. Not long enough to not chase after him, but long enough to let him go. The one who fears the Lord is the one who's been instructed by the Lord. Because what will the Lord teach us? Look, he'll teach us that our soul can prosper Instead of living in the death that it's living in now. That there can be descendants, offspring that inherit the land, this good spiritual place. That there's a secret that the Lord gives to those who fear him. And the Lord himself makes them to know his covenant. That person who the Lord instructs, his eyes are continually toward the Lord. And the Lord will do him the kindness of plucking his feet out of the net, the trap of sin. And then David makes a great request. Lord, turn to me and be gracious to me. Turn and be gracious to me. David is clearly struggling with some measure of sin in this moment. His heart and his mind are overwhelmed that he would turn to wickedness rather than turning to the Lord. And he is calling for the Lord to be gracious to him and turn to him. Because friends, when you are in your sin. There are a great many troubles that come. We'll run through these quickly and then fill them in. He says, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. I am in distress. I have this affliction and this trouble. I have these enemies that are around me and they surround me with a violent hatred. Friends, when you are in sin, sin is all-consuming but never satisfying. You always want more. And the more you get, the more it destroys. There is no delight long-term to be found in rebellion against the things of God. It's just not. 
As grossly as it is expressed in the Old Testament, it says that sin, iniquity, transgression is like a dog that returns to its own vomit. It's disgusting. But there's this odd longing in that sickness to be filled again, even if it's with the most despicable things. And David acknowledged this by laying out all of these troubles One of the things that sin brings about in the life of any person who pursues it is loneliness and affliction. You might be among a large group of people sinning together, but friend, I guarantee you, you are quite alone in that moment. Whatever you feel about this song and this track, I contend that one of the greatest lyrics ever penned by a human being was by Billy Joel and Piano Man talking about the waitress and the businessman. And he says, they're sharing a drink they call loneliness. But it's better than drinking alone. That's what sin does. It surrounds you with supposed friends like the prodigal son. He took his father's wealth. He went and lived the high life. He threw his money and his influence and his fame around. And he found a great many friends until the well ran dry. And then all he had were the pigs that he was eating sop with at the end. Where are the friends that were with me before? They're nowhere to be found. Sin drives you to a deep afflicted place of loneliness. And it is only a true relationship with Christ that gives you any sort of relational fulfillment. Any real lasting delight. The troubles of David's heart were enlarged. Friends, it is sin that feeds the pain and the anxiety of the heart. Can the true believer who's walking with the Lord have pain and anxiety in their heart? Absolutely, you better believe they can. Charles Spurgeon had it all the time. He called it the dark night of the soul. Pain and sorrow in the heart is not an exemption for the Christian who's walking in the faith. But friends, I tell you, the Christian walking in the faith can find some version and measure of hope in the midst of the anxiety of the heart. The one who is just pursuing only their sin will never find hope in the darkest moments of their heart, ever. They'll keep looking for a band-aid to cover up the cancer of their rebellion against God. And so what does David cry out? He says, deliver me from my distress. Look upon this and forgive all my sins. Man. And then in the last three verses, 20 through 22, David calls out for God to protect and to redeem him. Guard and deliver. Guard my soul and deliver me. The language there for guarding is to watch over. The language there for deliverance is the salvation language. Watch over my soul and save it. Friends, if I try to watch over my own soul, I won't make it out of the house in the morning. Before I've derailed Just about everything in my life. It is difficult for me, spiritually speaking, to walk a straight line in my own strength for more than a couple of seconds. 
I need the Lord to watch over me. I need him to be the soldier on the wall. I need him to be the king on the throne. I need him to be the shepherd in the pen. I need him to be a strong tower. A mighty fortress. A great defense. And I need him to save me. I need for him to take away my shame. I need to be able to take refuge in him. And then David makes a request. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. How do you even get to that place? How do you get to the place of integrity and uprightness? For I wait, I hope in you. Friends, left to myself, I am not filled with integrity. I'm not filled with uprightness. But when I turn my focus away from me. And I hope in the Lord. He gives me the gift of integrity. Of uprightness. Of righteousness, of compassion, of mercy, of joy, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things become mine because I have hoped in the Lord. And there's a call for God to redeem, redeem Israel. Notice here the language, it's not of Jacob, it's of Israel. The one who is striving with the Lord, not the one who's the deceiver, the one who's truly striving with the Lord. He will bring him out of all his troubles. Friend, do you do you hear this? Do you hear this? He will redeem him out of all of his troubles. Does that mean it's always going to shake out just the way you want it to? (laughs) No. No. The Lord redeemed the Apostle Paul out of all of his troubles. And yet he was imprisoned and shipwrecked and eventually martyred for his faith. But I guarantee you, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul... Has the Lord redeemed you out of all of your troubles? He would say resoundingly, yes. I know what it means to be hungry. I know what it means to be well filled. And Paul went through a whole list like that. I have found my content in Christ. I do not count these present sufferings to be compared with the glory that is to come. Friends, we have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've been crowned with glory. We've been given a new name. We've been welcomed to his banquet table. We've been clothed with his righteousness. We have been called sons and daughters 
princes and princesses of the kingdom. God is our father. Christ is our brother. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. He has redeemed us from all of our troubles. For the most part, not in whole, but for the most part, the reason we still experience deep soul wrenching trouble is because we have done like David did midway through the psalm and we have turned away from the things of the Lord and embraced our sin. Because, friend, when we have true hope in the Lord, when we're walking rightly with him, when we are focused on his glory and his namesake and his loving, uh, his loving kindness and his mercy and his compassion and the goodness of him to forgive us and to redeem us and to set us free. Friend, every other trouble fades and pales in comparison to the exalted glory of our Savior, Jesus. Jesus is the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that he and he alone is the full display of your mercy and your compassion and your goodness toward us whose iniquity is great. Thank you, God, that through Christ, you look at us through the lens of your mercy and you see us as your children. and You clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us when we turn away from you and we pursue the sinful desires of our flesh. When we long for the meat of Egypt and slavery rather than the good manna of heaven that you provide for us in this journey to the promised land. Father, help our unbelief. Teach us that a little in Christ is infinitely more valuable than all the world has to offer. And we thank you for how transformative that will be in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning.